I was told that I would uh, go up after the verse where the children would come forward. And I thought to myself, I wonder if I will recognize when the children come forward. And um, <laughs> I did. <laughs> did. Sweet, sweet time. Well, thank you for the invitation to be here. Please take your Bible and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, maybe look, put it, your finger or bookmark in Hebrews 12 as well. But thank you for the opportunity to be here. I've known Matt for a long time since he first became a student for his master's degree at Southern Seminary. And uh, it is a real honor to be here. Preached all over the state, first time in Gadsden. Uh, in fact, I preached in, I think, 47 states. But uh, first time I've been in Gadsden. It's great. Great to be here, and I know I'd be remiss if I didn't bring greetings from my boss, Dr. Moeller, uh, who has been here before, uh, I know, and uh, he uh, would want me to say thank you for your church's gifts to the cooperative program, which uh, make it possible for us to uh, continue to teach on your behalf. Southern's the oldest and largest of the six Southern Baptist seminaries, one of only seven seminaries in the country that's grown in the last five years, and um, uh, we couldn't do that without your church's gifts. That also makes possible when God calls someone from your church to be a pastor, a missionary, worship leader, biblical counselor, um, and who doesn't have much money. They can get the best seminary education in the world at a minimal cost. I, I've spoken at churches uh, 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 seminaries where the students pay 10 times literally what our students pay. Though the electricity is roughly the same, the salaries are roughly the same, they pay 10 times more than our students because there are 47,000 churches like this church who voluntarily give an amount decided by this church to the Southern Baptist Cooperative Program. All of which is to say thank you for paying my salary. I want you to imagine that you're praying, and as you're praying, suddenly, unexpectedly, an angel appears to you. And as this angel appears, the angel says, God is giving you a miracle, let me speak first to the men, a miracle with your pitching arm. Despite your age or physical condition, you're going to be enabled to throw a new kind of pitch with a baseball. And it's going to so move and dance like a knuckleball and be so unhittable that in October of 2022, you will be pitching in the World Series for the Atlanta Braves. But you must practice an hour every day. Or to you ladies, the angel says, God is giving you a miraculous singing voice. It's going to be unlike anything the world has ever heard. And it's going to so take the world by storm. The next October, you will open the World Series by singing the national anthem. But, says the angel, you must practice an hour every day. Well, poof, the angel is gone. Astonished. You, when you finally come to yourself again, immediately you go outside, you begin throwing the baseball against the side of the house. Hour after hour, that's all you want to do because God told you to do it. Or you begin singing the national anthem hour after hour. God told you to do it. And you're going to be in the World Series. About a couple of weeks go by and, you know, life gets busy. School's starting back. 
things are beginning to happen and you know it, it's a struggle to fit in that hour of practice but after all you do it God told you to do it and you're going to be in the World Series another couple of weeks go by and man life has really begun to pile up and it's almost impossible but you do it you know because God told you to do it another couple of weeks go by and you can hardly make yourself practice an hour a day yes yes you know God's told you to do it but God's told you to do lots of things do your work care for your family serve in your church all kinds of things God has told you to do too you know what you need to remember when that happens you're going to be in the world series <laughs> pitching before the whole world singing before the whole world at the opening of the World Series, when you can remember that, that daily discipline is no drudgery. But any discipline without direction is drudgery. And the very same thing can happen with the spiritual disciplines of the Christian life. Reading the Bible every day can be just another thing to do in an already overloaded, over-busy life. Prayer threatens to become drudgery. And any other spiritual discipline can seem like, why? Just another box to check in an already too busy Christian life. You know what you need to remember when that inevitably happens? What you're going to become. For the Bible says of God's elect, in Romans 8, 29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that in order that He, Jesus, might become the firstborn among many brothers, many made like Christ. And those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. These whom He predestined, these He also called. These whom He called, these He also justified. These whom He justified, these He also glorified made like Christ forever and ever. Not like Him in His divinity. We're not going to be little gods like the Mormons believe. Rather, we'll be like Him in His sinless, perfect humanity, reflecting the glory of God from every pore and cell of our bodies. And that's no angelic promise. That is the Word of God. That is you, Christian. If you are in Christ, that's you in a few years. We've been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, predestined to be made like Christ. All those in Christ will be made like Jesus Christ, reflecting the glory of God forever. And we are going to be like Him as this is glorified forever and ever. And that's you. In just a few years, perhaps, if you're in Christ. Well, if God is predestined, that all those in Christ will be like Christ. Why talk about discipline at all? Why not just trust the Word of God, coast on into glory, and enjoy the ride? Well, there's this little sort of kind of unbaptistic verse in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, which says, Pursue, very active word there, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification. The holiness, the godliness, 
the Christ-likeness. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue the sanctification, holiness, Christ-likeness, godliness, without which, who will see the Lord? No one. Well, what if they've been to church every day of their life? They just don't pursue holiness. What if they've given great sums of money, gone on mission trips, served in the church faithfully every week for decades, take the Lord's Supper as often as it's offered? They, they just don't happen to pursue personal holiness. What happens when they die? Well, the Bible says they will not see the Lord. You know why? They never knew the Lord. They never knew the Lord. See, it's not that we qualify ourselves to see the Lord by our pursuit of holiness. We're qualified to see the Lord by the Lord, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from our, holiness, our, our, our own attempts at holiness, our pursuit of holiness, any of our works. We're qualified to see the Lord by the Lord, but... Those who have been qualified to see the Lord. In other words, those who know Him, pursue Him. That's one of the marks that you know Him and you're going to see Him later is because you want to see Him now. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, as Jesus put it. See, those who have come to know the Lord in this life have been given what? Spirit. The Holy Spirit, right? All those in Christ are given the Holy Spirit. And wherever the Holy Spirit goes, He brings His holy presence with Him. His holy nature. Just like us, wherever you go, you bring your nature with you. When you walked in the doors this morning, you didn't pause and say, let's see, hmm, which nature will I bring with me today? How about, how about my alligator nature? No, you don't have an alligator nature. You only have one nature, your human nature, and you bring your nature with you wherever you go. The same is true with the Holy Spirit. Wherever He goes, He brings His holy nature with Him, and He is not passive. Whenever He indwells one of God's creatures, You realize if you are in Christ, that means, therefore, two people live in your body. You do, of course, and the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not a force, as apparently some 40% of Southern Baptists believe, according to a Lifeway survey. He is a person, the third person of the triune Godhead. And so you have another person living within your body. If you're an expectant mom here today, three people live in your body. And just like when that little person is living in that mother's body, there comes a time where she begins to realize, wait a minute, something's different. And then it's confirmed, you've got another person living in your body. Pretty soon that little person makes himself or herself evident. And after a while it becomes evident to everybody. There's another person living in your body. Folks, when the Holy Spirit of Almighty God indwells any flesh and blood creature. It becomes evident. First to you, then to others. That there's another person living in your body. 
The Holy Spirit is there. He has a holy nature invading your life, and He is not passive. And He gives you, when He indwells you, new holy hungers that you didn't have before. You hunger for the Holy Word of God. You used to find boring or irrelevant. You hunger for fellowship with God's people. Not just, not just mere socializing, though that's good, healthy, and normal. We've gone through that with COVID. We, we long to socialize, to be around other people. We miss that. But it, the hunger created by the Holy Spirit for fellowship is not just socializing. Though that's good, healthy, and normal. Socializing is talking about news, weather, sports, politics. Again, that's good, healthy, and normal. The, the godliest of Christians do a lot of socializing. But that's not, to use a seminary word, a Greek word here, koinonia. You've heard that word before. The Greek word translated fellowship. It's not koinonia. Koinonia is when you hunger to talk about God and the things of God. And those indwelled by the Holy Spirit simply cannot live a life without talking about the things of God. That's what makes you get up and want to come to Sunday school when your neighbors don't because here, Sunday school, you talk about the Bible. What does this mean? How does this apply to my life? And we love testimonies to hear about answers to prayer. We love for hearing about opportunities where people were given a chance to share the gospel and things like a, a well-given missions report where you say people from our church went down there and were able to tell uh, little children in Honduras about Jesus. And we love to hear of those opportunities like that. That's koinonia. That's talking about God and the things of God. And a Christian cannot live without that. The Holy Spirit's presence gives you a hunger and a longing for these things and, and a longing to live in a body without sin anymore. You long to live with a mind no longer attracted to temptation and sin ever again. You long to live in a holy and perfect world with holy and perfect people, what Jonathan Edwards called a world of love. And most of all, you long at last to look face to face into the eyes like a flame of fire, as John described them, into the face of Jesus, into the face of the one the angels call holy, holy, holy. And that is the heartbeat of all those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. And that's why, according to Hebrews 12, 14, if you're not pursuing that, if you don't have an appetite for that, if you don't have longings for the things of God, you don't have God. The Spirit of God kindles these longings and these appetites, and you're in the grip of the groan of these things. And so your life is always being pulled toward holiness, holy things, holy words, holy people. And if you're not pursuing that, you won't see the Lord. It's not that if you pursue it real hard, God will let you into heaven. No, your pursuit of those things from the heart indicates that you are on your way to heaven. That's one of the markers of the presence of the Holy Spirit. You have new holy loves that the world doesn't have, holy longings, holy appetites, and you're moving toward pursuing holiness. If you're not doing that, you don't know the Lord and you won't see the Lord. Well, given the fact that that is true, 
the great question this morning then is, how do we pursue the holiness without which we will not see the Lord? How do we do that? Well, the answer is in my text, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7. And in the ESV that I'm using here, it says, Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The translation I prefer here, the New American Standard, says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And again, being one of your seminary professors, I'm duty-bound to use Greek at least once while I'm here, right? But it makes a difference here. That word translated discipline or train, you know that word. It's gymnasia. Gymnasia yourself. Gymnasium yourself. The word has a smell of the gym to it. It's a sweaty word. It says discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And I think it might help if I sort of draw this verse in the air. Three parts to it. Discipline yourself. Why? For the purpose. What purpose? Of godliness. Notice here the goal is godliness. Holiness. Sanctification. Christ-likeness. The word we saw back in Hebrews 12, 14. Remember, pursue the holiness, sanctification, without which no one will see the Lord. If you're not pursuing godliness, you're not going to see God. Well, that's what this verse is talking about. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. If your purpose, if your goal is godliness, and it is, if you're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, He makes that your purpose. How do you get there? How do you pursue the godliness without which no one will see the Lord? Well, the verse tells us you discipline yourself for that purpose. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And historically, the, the active ways that we obey that verse have been called the spiritual disciplines. The everyday shoe leather, work world kind of ways we pursue this, a godless, when it says discipline yourself, those are practices found in the Bible by which we pursue Godliness. So we call them the spiritual disciplines. That's what we're going to talk about in the rest of my time here. And I'm going to spend most of that time, and if, if I can work them in, three points. But the first one that I'll spend nearly all the time on is what are these things? What are the spiritual disciplines? Because without practicing them, we won't see the Lord. So what are we talking about here? These are the practices found in the Bible by which we pursue God. And godliness. Pretty simple. Practices found in the Bible, by command or example, been practiced by the people of God since biblical times, by which ordinary people pursue God and experience God, by the way. The God-given means by which we experience God have been called the spiritual Discipline. So we experience God by these means. We're transformed into godliness by these means. So what are we talking about? Let me give you several characteristics. First of all, the spiritual disciplines should be considered both personal and interpersonal. Two kinds, basically, broadly. Personal spiritual disciplines, interpersonal spiritual disciplines. In other words, those you practice alone, and those you practice with other people, usually with the church. Now, this is important to, to, to call attention to because when 
I speak of spirituality or we speak of spiritual disciplines, my guess is that almost every mind reverts to the personal. Spiritual disciplines, what are they? That's when you get alone with God and do those things. And that's right, that's only half the picture. There are also interpersonal spiritual disciplines. So, for example, we are to get alone and pray. Jesus did that. Jesus taught that. But the Bible also tells us to pray with the church. We're to worship God all alone, but we're also to worship God with the church. We are to get into God's Word all by ourselves, read it and meditate on it by ourselves, but the Bible also tells us to hear the Word of God preached and taught with others, study it with others. You see what I mean? There are personal spiritual disciplines, there are interpersonal spiritual disciplines, and we all need both. But we're all inclined a little more one way or the other. And most of us, when we think about spirituality, nevertheless, whether you're inclined toward the interpersonal or not, we tend to think only of these practices as those we do alone. You know, you have your spiritual practices, your spirituality, I have mine, you keep yours to yourself, I'll keep mine to myself. But everybody has them, right? Everybody's spiritual today. Big day of spirituality now. And everyone is spiritual. I have a survey from the front page of USA Today newspaper where even a majority of atheists consider themselves spiritual people. I mean, just try to find anybody today who would say to you, well, you know, I'm just not very spiritual. Everybody is spiritual, aren't they? But it's always, they're always thinking of that in terms of privatized spirituality. A strictly privatized spirituality is not New Testament spirituality. In the Bible, there is no Christ-likeness apart from interpersonal spirituality. The, the congregational or corporate spiritual disciplines. Let me get back to how, though we are all, God just made us individually to be inclined more one way or the other. Some of us like to be alone. You're more accustomed to being alone. You're, you're energized more by being alone than with other people. You're, you're more drained when you're with other people, but you're energized spiritually more alone with God. That's when you're refreshed. And man, 2020 was the greatest year of your life. You wish they'd make social distancing permanent, you know? You love being alone with God. And you're the kind of person that says, you know, I could take my personal spiritual disciplines and go out and be an evangelical monk, an evangelical nun. I don't need that ungodly, half-committed bunch down at the church. They only slow me down anyway. But the kind of people who'd be the most faithful attenders to church, you're here every time the door is open, you're probably inclined a little more in the other direction. You're the kind of person who's energized by being around people. You don't like to be alone. And you get more encouragement from the things of God and spiritual things when you're with others and when you're alone. But you're also tempted to believe that, well, if I'm here pretty much every time the doors are open, and I am, and if I profit from that, oh, I do, well, I'm sure at the end of it all, that will compensate for the lack of a personal devotional life. No, it won't. We all need both. The Bible teaches both. 
Jesus practiced both. At least six times in the Bible, we see where Jesus got alone to pray. And if he needed to do that, we do too. But in Luke chapter 4, Dr. Luke tells us, as his custom was, he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now, wouldn't you think if anyone ever had a pass on going to church, it would be Jesus? I mean, all these people to teach, this messianic ministry to fulfill, all these miracles to do. And yet, once a week, he would pull aside from all that, knowing he had a short time to do it. He would pull aside from that, all that and sit and listen to some dusty old rabbi preach what must have been to him a boring sermon. I think only a preacher can really fully appreciate what I'm about to say when I say that Jesus must have often sat there thinking, boy, I could do better than that. <laughs> but he was there. He was there. How often he must have thought, oh, man, he really butchered that verse. <laughs> oh, yeah, how do you know? Uh, well, I wrote it. But he was there. Because that was the appointed time for the people of God to gather. And Jesus said, the people of God, those are my people. I want to be with my people when it's time for the people of God to gather. So he was there. Jesus practiced the personal and the interpersonal spiritual disciplines. So should we. Their experiences with God you will never get except alone with God. But their experiences of God you will never get except with his people. Second, spiritual disciplines, think of them as activities and not attitudes. Spiritual disciplines are things you do, not things that you are. So the spiritual disciplines are activities. They're not character qualities. They're not graces. They're not the fruit of the Spirit. Though, note carefully, that's what the disciplines pursue. That's the goal of the disciplines. Remember our drawing in the air? Discipline yourself. Practice these disciplines. Why? Well, there's... There's a purpose. What is it? Godliness, fruit of the Spirit, Christ-likeness. That's what we're after. But you don't get there by doing nothing. There are certain biblical activities that if you practice them and practice them rightly with the right spirit and attitude, you can expect God to bless you with godliness and experiences with God. So we don't speak of the discipline of joy, for example, or the discipline of peace. Those things are the fruit of the disciplines done rightly. With a spiritual discipline, usually you can measure them in some way. By length of time, you know when you started and you know when you stopped. I started reading my Bible at 8 o'clock. I stopped at 8.30. I'm, I'm praying now. Oh, I'm not praying now. I'm, I'm talking to you. Uh, or uh, you're fasting. Okay, I started fasting, you know, at this time, and I stopped fasting at this time. With the disciplines, because they're activities, you can usually measure them somehow by time or frequency or something like that. Now, they can be totally empty that way, but they are that. They're much more than activities, but they're not less than activities. The Pharisees practiced the spiritual disciplines, and Jesus said they were the epitome of ungodliness. 
but he affirmed their practice of the disciplines. They should have been in the Word of God. That's good. They should have honored him with their lips. The problem is, he said, their hearts were far away when they honored him with their lips. The spiritual disciplines are things you do. Third, the spiritual disciplines, I, I believe we should limit them to things that are biblical. Disciplines found in the Bible. You might think, well, duh, of course. Well, if we don't make that conscious limitation, that tempts us to call anything we fancy a spiritual discipline. What does that look like? Well, someone might say, you know, maybe, maybe meditation on Scripture, that works for you, good for you, but you know, gardening is, is like a spiritual discipline for me. Someone else might say, you know, you're into Scripture memory or something, good for you. Exercise is like a spiritual discipline for me. And I think I know what people mean when they mean it in the best sense, like with gardening. They, they feel they're in God's creation. They feel in a closeness to God as creator and the glory of God in every part of his world. And they're doing these things, you know, to the glory of God. And that's the way gardening ought to be. Praise God. But the problem with calling anything we want a spiritual discipline is, rather than letting God make that limitation to the Bible, is we're only going to choose the disciplines we already like anyway, right? We're going to pick what we like that and pronounce them our disciplines, and there we're going to reject the things we don't like. We're putting ourselves in God's place here. Rather than accepting those God has revealed in Scripture and for a purpose. Fourth description would be this, that the spiritual disciplines found in Scripture are sufficient for knowing and experiencing God and for growing in godliness. That in the pages of this book are every spiritual practice you need to experience God as fully as a man or woman can in this world. And in the pages of this book are every practice necessary to grow as Christ-like as is possible. You don't need any other practice other than those found in Scripture, despite the testimony of anyone else. Let me make this down to earth here. <clears throat> Do you know what a labyrinth is? <clears throat> Excuse me. A labyrinth, spelled L-A-B-Y-R-I-N-T-H, a labyrinth is something sort of like a maze. If you looked at it from the air, it's like a maze. A circle that can be, oh, as wide as the space between these two aisles or as wide as this building, or theoretically as wide as you want to make it. And from the air, it would look like a maze in which, uh, but unlike a maze which tries to block you from getting to the center, the goal of a labyrinth is to get you to the center, but to, with as long a path as possible. So you walk in and you immediately begin walking a path that hugs the corner of the circle, and you get a quarter of the way around, and you turn around and go back the other way. And then you turn right next to that and come back, and you just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Eventually, you get to the center, and uh, during all this prayerful, meditative time, you, uh, you're, you're thinking about Scripture, perhaps. You're praying. You get to the center, and you uh, pause there and are still and, and, and pray and whatever, and then you go the opposite route going out. These have had an incredible comeback, though, with their 2,000 
years old. They've had an incredible comeback. Two pages in the Wall Street Journal about them a couple of years ago, people spending $125,000, put them in their backyard. I'm sure some have been constructed in, in Gadsden in the past five or ten years. I know at least I know at least seven that have been built in Louisville in the last ten years, advertised in the paper, inviting people of all faiths or no faith to come and enjoy the peace of the labyrinth. Uh, a non-evangelical seminary just a mile from or less from our seminary has one right in between the two front gates and I always take my doctoral students over there to show them that when we talk about these things and there are people who say look I was raised in the church I was told read the Bible every day and pray I did that that didn't work for me but walking in the labyrinth does and there are people like the famous uh, economist Jane Bryant Quinn who said the only thing that got me through the grief of the death of my adult child was walking the labyrinth. And we could multiply testimonies. What do you say to that? Well, at the very least, what we don't say is, well, no, it didn't help you. <clears throat> They're going to say, well, I know my experience. That trumps your argument. But at the very least, we can say this, it isn't necessary. How do we know it's not necessary? not in here it's not in here every spiritual practice you need is here and if people find more peace and joy from walking a labyrinth than getting into the Bible and praying either they're not converted or they're doing it wrong because the Bible even claims sufficiency for all these things and you know the verse in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Get that? For training in righteousness. But it goes on. So that the man or woman of God may be how well equipped? Thoroughly equipped. For how many good works? Every good work. Including the good work of pursuing holiness. The Bible claims sufficiency for every spiritual practice we need. So we don't have to go spiritually shopping for things that help some people. We'll give it a try. Try the practices of other religions and see if we can syncretize them into Christianity. The Bible claims that every spiritual practice you need to experience God to the full and to be like Christ is right here in the Bible. And I devote my entire life and right in here, God willing, tomorrow morning I'm going to talk about terms of prayer that with virtually everyone who prays who is converted who believes in prayer they tend to say the same old things about the same old things in prayer and frankly that's boring and to talk about the same old things about the same old things every single time your mind wanders and you feel like a failure in prayer and there's a simple permanent biblical solution to that that a six-year-old can do and that if people say the same old things about the same old things and prayer is boring and their mind is wandering, they're, they're doing it wrong. And there's a simple fix to that. Well, I can see my time is just a, about gone, but um, I'm going to continue for just a few more minutes. But the spiritual disciplines also... I would call your attention just a couple of more things here. These are not divorced from the gospel. They're derived from the gospel. 
What does that mean? It's not as though you believe the gospel, okay, those are the ABCs, now I'm a Christian, now let's get to the meaty things of God, the spiritual disciplines. No, we never grow deeper than the gospel itself. And the spiritual disciplines only get us deeper into the glories of the gospel. Don't think of the spiritual disciplines as really high-level spirituality once you get past the baby stuff of the gospel. The, go the disciplines only take us deeper into the glories of the gospel. And six, the spiritual disciplines are the means to godliness. They're not ends. They're not ends. Now, I said I'd spend almost all my time on that very first point, and there it is. Quickly, the second one basically is that the spiritual disciplines are means to godliness. They are not ends. In other words, you're not godly just because you practice the disciplines. The goal is not just to get really good or really faithful or really consistent at practicing the disciplines. That was the mistake of the Pharisees. They thought if they did all the disciplines, that's what godliness is. Jesus said, you... you Practice all these disciplines. They had memorized the first five books of the Bible. You tied even down to little seeds. And he said, these are things you ought to have done without neglecting the weightier matters. What were they? Justice. Mercy. In other words, Christ's likeness. That's the goal, not just being good at the disciplines. The disciplines are the means to godliness. Remember our drawing in the air? Discipline yourself. Why? For another purpose, not just to be good at them, but for the purpose of godliness. If they don't promote godliness and experiencing God, you missed it. You missed the point. The disciplines are, are highways to himself, we might say, that God has built. And our practice of the disciplines is just getting a hold of yourself and bringing yourself onto those highways where Jesus goes. The great illustration of this is Zacchaeus. Remember that wee little man? He wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't. He's too short with all the crowd. So he knew the path Jesus would take. And he went down that path, climbed that sycamore tree, and Jesus came right underneath him. And Zacchaeus experienced Jesus, was changed by Jesus. That's what the spiritual disciplines are. To get on those highways God goes, you pull yourself on them by means of the disciplines. You pull yourself in front of God. Like Zacchaeus did. What are the highways he has built? The Word of God, prayer, worship, fasting, silence, solitude, serving, godly learning. These are the things we find in the Bible. God said, you practice these things rightly, you can expect to meet me there. This is perhaps a silly illustration, but I think it sticks. If I wanted to know what it was like to get hit by a semi, where would I go to find out? I mean, what, if I believed I, I, it's going to be a spiritual experience. Well, since 1927, this building has been built for spiritual experiences. So I come in here, take hold of the pulpit, and say, okay, God, let it hit me. Let the truck hit me. I'm ready. What's going to happen? Nothing. Except Pastor Matt's going to call the men in white coats to come carry me away. You know why? Trucks don't run in here. That's why. If I want to get hit by a semi, where do I go? Out on I-59, right? That's where the trucks run. Folks, if you want to get hit by the truck of God's Spirit... In other words, you want to really experience God. 
pull yourself into the paths he's built for that, into those highways, the biblical highways. He said, you practice these things with the right heart and attitude. You can expect to meet me there. You come to one of the things God has ordained, biblical worship. You come in here with the right attitude. You can expect to experience God here on a regular basis, to hear from God. You know, it's not automatic. You can't just by coming into the room and the worship must be biblically based as it is here. If you have scripture being the revelation of God being sung and being read and being preached and being prayed, God is being presented and you have to seek him. You can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. But if God is being revealed here and you come seeking for God, you can experience God here because God ordained biblical worship like this. It's no great secret. But the disciplines are the means to godliness. They are not the ends. And I'll just skip my third point and get to the conclusion here. First thing I would say if to conclude is these disciplines, there's an invitation to you to experience them, but if you Neglect them, I warn you, there's great danger. There's great danger in neglecting the spiritual disciplines. You know what the greatest danger is? Missing God. If you don't pursue holiness, remember where we start, if you're not pursuing holiness, you'll miss God. And this is how you pursue holiness. We don't just wait for God to zap us. Okay, if I, you know, I'm, I'm chosen by God. And so I'm going to go to heaven. He's going to make me like Christ one day, so I'm just going to live the life I want and just enjoy the ride on into heaven. No, we don't just wait for God to zap us with godliness. We're to pursue it. How do we pursue it? We've seen it's these spiritual disciplines. You neglect that, there is great danger, and the greatest danger is missing God. If you have no appetite for these things, you don't know God. But if you are a Christian, the great danger in neglecting these spiritual disciplines is little experience with God, little spiritual fruit, your life making no difference for the sake of the kingdom of God. And the great fear of my life is my life not making an impact for the kingdom of God. One way to make sure that your life does have an impact in your home and in your job and in your town, you pursue holiness, God uses people who pursue holiness. I have students who come with incredible gifts and talents, and they win the prizes at graduation. They're the ones who often go to the big churches right out of seminary, and their, their ministry experience right out of seminary is just like a skyrocket. But they rely on their gifts and talents. And you know what God loves to bless more than gifts and talents? conformity to his son because most of my students all they can do is plod you know they make b's they make c's they don't win any prizes at graduation but they discipline themselves for the purpose of godliness and their ministry trajectory is more like this over the years as they're growing deeper and deeper in their roots in christ and becoming more and more christ-like and god blesses them with much lasting fruit 
And unlike the 50% of seminary graduates who five years out of seminary are no longer in the ministry, these are the ones who endure. These are the ones who at the end of life are more Christ-like and more fruitful year after year. God loves to bless conformity to His Son. When He bless your gifts and your talents, it's easy for you to steal the glory. But when He blesses Christ-likeness, Jesus gets the glory. So first of all, there's danger in neglecting the disciplines. Second, there is freedom in embracing them. The freedom we long for in the Christian life comes by walking this path of discipline. But that's no surprise. That's true in everything, isn't it? From successful executives, moms who manage their households well, all-star shortstops, master craftsmen, the freedom to do something well and easily, it appears, comes from years of devotion to it. Do you know the name of Christopher Parkening? He's one of America's premier classical guitarists. He's also a very devoted follower of Jesus, a man who's about my age or so. If he happened to be in Gadsden for a concert, perhaps last night, and this morning he wanted to come to church, he happened to be in First Baptist Church, and we noticed that right at the end of the service, we said, my goodness, this morning Christopher Parkin is here, is here with us, and we, have, we can bring a guitar for you here. Chris, would you sit down, or maybe right here might be better, and would you, would you close our service by, by playing something for us? In, in fact, we're going to give you a little bit of a challenge so we can kind of let people realize who you are. Would you improvise? I'm going to ask you to play a song, make up a song, make up a song right here on the spot you've never played in your life. If he were willing to do that, he'd pause for a moment, and then he would begin to play. And his fingers would dance up and down that fretboard, and this musical aroma would come wafting out of this guitar, and we'd go, wow, how does he do that? How does he have not just a, a spontaneity to play something, like that, but a beautiful spontaneity? See, I could play spontaneously for you, too. You'd make a stampede out the door. But this would be a spontaneity that's beautiful. How does he do that? It's because he sat with that instrument six hours a day for 60 years. That's where it comes from. That's where the freedom comes from. But that's true with everything, isn't it? And it's true with the things of God. The freedom we long for in the Christian life comes as a result of discipline. And I say to my students, when you're my age, how well do you want to know the Bible? It's not going to come by getting a seminary degree. It's going to come by day after day, decade after decade, being in the Word of God every single day. That's where the freedom comes. Who has the freedom to quote Scripture? The people discipline themselves to memorize it, right? I mean, you're free, in one sense, to quote the whole Bible, aren't you? Uh, go ahead. I'll get you started. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Now, go ahead. Just quote the whole Bible. <laughs> no, we're in bondage to our lack of Scripture memory, right? Freedom comes through discipline. And so, the obvious conclusion is that there is an invitation to all people to enjoy God through the practice of the spiritual discipline. to experience God 
we taste and see that the Lord is good through the disciplines he's given us in his word. This is how we experience God. This is how we grow in grace. And this is open to every one of you. So it may be that this morning as you're sitting there, the finger of the Holy Spirit is pressed on your heart to say, here's discipline you've, you've disregarded. You need to blow the dust off of it and return. Or maybe one he has prompted you for a long time to pick up and to begin. And this would be the day you would do that. Now, the greatest danger of a message like this is people will misunderstand and think, if I really get devoted to these spiritual disciplines, God will accept me. That is contrary to the main message of the gospel. We're accepted by God by one person's discipline only, by one life only, and that of Jesus. First thing you need to do is come to Him. But I presume most of you have. What discipline would He impress upon you today to return to, to begin? Let's pray.